Thanks for popping out of your conversations. I know it can, the momentum gets going. It's sometimes hard to break the flow. Anyway, my thoughts are a little bit unformed tonight, but there's been something on my mind the last uh, 24 hours or so. And I think the best way to begin or what would encapsulate my thoughts is a short story that probably many of you have heard before about a, a young woman who was very passionate about meditation practice and she spent uh, several months doing a, an intensive practice period at Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts back in the, in the late 70s. And she was from northern Canada and her parents were uh, fundamentalist Christians. And she was uh, quite concerned about uh, going back to Canada after her long practice periods because she was a very devoted yogi. And her parents thought she'd really gone off the deep end and they wanted to have her exercised. And uh, it was really quite a big challenge for her. And she wrote a letter to, uh, to Ramdas. Most of you know who Baba Ramdas. I think he's really central character in our generation of uh, spiritual practitioners. She wrote a letter to Ramdas talking about all her trials and tribulations with her, with her parents. And she, she wrote from northern Canada. And she ended her letter by saying, my parents hate me when I'm a Buddhist, but love me when I'm a Buddha. And that really says it all. Because the Buddha, it's not a, some icon. Some, you know, normally where I teach, there's usually a, sta- a Buddha statue. Buddha, when I'm a Buddha, I'm awake. I'm wide awake. But in order for me to be wide awake... I have to be utterly ordinary, stripped away of all identities, all notions, even the identity of Buddhist, the identity of meditator. In order for me to be awake, I simply have to be one with nature. I have to be simply resting in my nature. And the Buddha was very big on nature. In fact, one of his most famous encapsulations of the teachings had to do with our bodies, which are simply an expression of nature, the very body that allows you to be here and perceive whatever is going on right now, both inner and outer, It is both the beginning of our path, it is the path, and it's the end of the path. Nature. Back to nature. This is back to nature practice. He said, this fathom-long body, in this fathom-long body, lies the world with with its inner sense, with its senses and perceptions, lies the world lies the cause of the world, lies the end of the world, 
and lies the path leading to the end of the world within this fathom-long body. So nature, our nature, is the, uh, is the ultimate, what we call Dharma door. It is the ultimate doorway to being a Buddha, to being free, to being awake. There's no higher mountain to climb than being able to understand, inhabit this fathom-long body to understand its nature, and some of that is cognitive and reflective, but most important for our practice, it's very immediate. It's the immediate felt sense of being here. So if I'm simply feeling my body sitting here, if you're feeling your body sitting here, you're, you are um, utilizing not something that it was created because you became a, a meditator. You are employing what is primary, what I mentioned during the sitting, what is primary and completely natural to you, which is awareness. In fact, you could say that, uh, you know, I'm not practicing awareness. I am awareness. I am aware. That's about all I can say about myself without consulting my memory. I'm awake, I'm aware. So you employed awareness, but in order for there to be awareness here, in order for you to be what you are, paradoxically, we need this vehicle, we need these elements, earth, air, fire, and water, having come together in time to look the way that they do and be shaped the way they do with, with their little openings, their little holes, and their their little sense uh, apparatus, the tongue, the, the nose, the, the ears, the eyes, the skin, amazing sense organ. And then, and then uh, the so-called mind, consciousness. And none of that's Buddhist. There's not one bone in our body there is not one sense organ that's Buddhist. So everything one needs to be a Buddha is completely natural. And nevertheless, another one of those strange paradoxes, you could say, it seems that only those who hear teachings reminding us of these things tend to realize it. So it's useful to have the teachings of the Buddha the teachings about this fathom-long body, the teaching of, of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, that which is difficult to bear, the cause of dukkha, the end of dukkha, the path leading to... It's wonderful to have all these teachings because they... But their best use is if they point us, if they become pointers back to this simple reality of you sitting here of you seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, coming to the, to the all, to the place of the all, that all there is uh, is this fathom-long body with its uh, perceptions and inner sense. The whole world is made. Awakening and delusion, all made with this fathom-long body. So we don't need to, li- to lift out of this moment to find... Uh, the Buddha. 
The Buddha is you. Before you can think. And I say this because even though this te- the teachings are all marvelous at pointing us, they tend to be like all sense experiences. And the experiences of the teachings, that's a, a mental experience. The teachings hit the door of perception called mind like a sound does to the ear. And with all mental, uh, with all sense experiences, when experiences have a certain resonance, have an association with a, a pleasant feeling, they produce a feeling of liking. When they produce an unpleasant feeling, and that's mental experience as well, or lack of resonance, we experience aversion. If, we, if we're kind of oblivious to the whole process of reacting to the various experiences of mind and body, there tends to, we tend to fall into confusion or delusion or into making up a big story about it. It's the same thing with the teachings. And one of the dangers of the teachings is it becomes a source of grasping, becomes a source of aversion. We become uh, identified, becomes a source of delusion where we become identified with the teachings, where it becomes, I'm now into the teachings of the Buddha. Now, I'm a Buddhist. And, of course, if I'm a Buddhist, then by proxy, I become the meditator. And I'm and all these things, to a degree, are useful designations. They're, they're fine. It's fine to have identities. But the tendency is to somehow become, as I did in my early practice, become calcified by the identity of Buddhist and meditator. And it wasn't actually until I stepped out of the, the tradition that I was so deeply trained in after spending, let's see, I must have spent 12 years doing a lot of intensive practice, total three years in silence, cumulatively, three month, three month, three month, four month, this But all of that time, even though I was learning a lot, I was slowly, slowly, becoming a Buddhist. And I think I was getting more and more contracted, more and more heavy, more and more um, seeing everything through the lens of the teachings. The teachings are a wonderful lens to look through as long as you notice you're doing that. But they can easily become something that makes you uptight and critical of other things or are bound up, as the Buddha said, in one of the four attachments. Attachment to sense pleasures, if a teaching is pleasurable. Attachment to views and opinions of what's right, what's wrong. Attachment to rites and rituals. How are you supposed to practice? And ultimately, the fourth great attachment that gets bound up with all of them is attachment to the concept of self. And that attachment to me and Buddhism as being mine and my practice and just what I talked about last week about me and mine, it can very much get uh, affect our relationship to the teachings and the practice. And it's very easy, without even knowing it, to uh, lose that, that uh, the earthiness of our nature, which is what the teachings and the practice point to, is realizing our nature, 
our wakefulness, which is you can't ever you can't put a you can't put a um, you can't put a box around that. What you experience right now, when you're simply attuned to this to this this amazing sensory apparatus called mind and body, what can you say in when you're really in touch with that? You might want to scream if it's unpleasant, but you might want to cry if you feel a, a sense of connection. You might want to laugh at how, how far removed the immediacy is from the, from the narrative that plays through our mind, the craziness of our self-views. It's, we're, we're really out there. But the good news is being out there or in there is a split second away. It's a split second of waking up to where we are, to coming back to nature, to entering once again just by breathing, just by seeing, hearing, smelling, and being conscious of doing that, once again just entering the stream of the unfolding of, of life. And from, that, from this vantage point, there's only now. And then there's another now, and then another now, and another now, and that's all there will ever be this whole, through this whole life, as long as we inhabit this fathom-long body that will just be unfolding present moments. Everything else is imaginary. Everything else is disconnected from nature, even though it is part of our nature to be able to fabricate past and future, to reflect on what came before and what may come again. But we, when we're in touch with nature, we know that all of that happens right where we're sitting. I was speaking to somebody today who, who's just come back from living in Central America and has a, um, a one-year-old baby and struggling, figuring out how to make a living and uh, has been for three months in a one little room with his, with his wife and child and they have to they have to somehow manage to f- to live in a way where they're not together every moment and they have to do everything that needs to be done they have to raise their child you know everything all the dramas that all of us go through we have each of us has some version of a drama and he in the time in these 3 months there was a lot of beautiful nature walking on the beach in this Central American country. But then there was also a lot of time for noodling, a lot of time for ruminating. And during this time, that process triggered a lot of reaction. And that reaction proliferated into a lot of worry, a lot of fear, and then the bo- registered in the body as a lot of anxiety. And pretty much the, the reality for that person is and it, as it is for many of us, the reality is is uh, not here I am sitting in the room or in this case here I am talking to you on the phone. It's my to do list. My to do list is my reality. My challenges, my projects, my everything I have to do is my reality. And immediate reality gets swept away in that. And whenever nature gets lost, 
to us. Nature's never lost, but whenever nature gets lost to us, we experience it as anxiety, as something's wrong. And then, of course, our mind tends to translate it, there's not just something wrong, but there's something wrong with me. And in a way, there is something wrong with us. We've lost touch with, we've lost our sense of home. As I've said many times here, really innocently, because there were times from the time we were born, there are lots of experience that we don't know how to accommodate. So we, we learn how to not be in touch with nature. So we learn all kinds of very useful strategies to disconnect. But somewhere in the span of our lives, we, we get the understanding is I need to come back. I need to, to come back home to nature. I need to cut through. So we all have the habits that lead to anxiety, but our doorway back home is to put our mind, as we do every Tuesday here, and hopefully you do every day in your life, and through the day, to keep putting your mind back in your body, your body back in your mind, all in the same location for a change, and just sense. Now, I have a to-do list I, my to-do list didn't go away. Did any of your to-do list go away? No, it doesn't go away. It may, you may not be thinking about it for a moment, but I can still have my to-do list. I can bring it here. And let's say I have so many things to accomplish. So many, Does it help to keep holding those things in my mind in order to accomplish them? And can I really accomplish any more than this moment's worth. And that's what we forget. We hold all of time in our mind as though, as though it, all has, it all has to be, it's all being done right now. And that's kind of cosmic, but we don't really think of it that cosmically. We think of it in an ignorant, in a mistaken, in a, in a way of mistaken perception. What's true is no matter what we have to do in our life, no matter what has to unfold, the only moment that we can take care of is this one, and then the next one, and then the next one. Future ones haven't happened. Past ones are gone. There's this one. What would be a useful way to utilize this one moment that I have? Because that's really all I have is this unfolding experience of what we call moments. There really aren't any moments. That's just another idea. It's another one of those fabrications. But it's a useful one for our conversation. What will I do with this moment? What seed will I plant that will, which I know will produce some future present moment uh, of some flavor or not? And I'm, uh, of course, as we talk about a lot here, you want to plant wholesome seeds right now. If you have a project, you want to do the things that will be helpful for that project. If you want to have love in your heart, yeah, you don't plant the seeds of hatred. Not intentionally, anyway. You may unintentionally. But to the degree that we can be awake, we can, we can as nature beings, we, can, we have with us not only elements of nature, but we have what the Buddha called sampajanya, clear comprehension. We can comprehend our situation. We can comprehend the context that we're living. We can comprehend what it is that's happening at one of our doors of perception. And with that comprehension, 
comes a lot of intelligence. We know what to do, basically. We know this, this, either what to do or I don't know what to do. And when in doubt, we generally don't. You don't do anything. But I, I think I can handle that. I can handle this moment. It seems too simple, too easy, but that's really, uh, that's why the teachings are called an open secret, because they are um, so close. And our mind's tendency is to dramatize them, to dramatize the endless path of seven lifetimes and 15 mahakalpas, thousands or millions of years. And there's really... All we can say on present evidence when we're awake, when we're Buddhas, is uh, there's this moment. So nature is a, um, a good teacher. Our own nature is a good teacher. When I think of, I think of, um, I was even thinking of today of what was the, um, the BP oil spill. Now that wasn't a natural spill but it was humans making a big mess. But it was interesting what happens. My brother-in-law is a oceanographic geologist engineer slash engineer. And he was hired to study the effects of on the water in the Gulf. And that horrific event took place where there's zillions of gallons of oil. And from his studies, his recent studies, there's almost no, not necessarily on the land, I don't know, close in, but the water itself in the deep gulf, there's almost no sign that it ever happened. That the plankton or some kind of microorganism ate up all the oil. And it reconstituted itself. It healed. Nature was doing its thing. I think that we, if we really trust our nature, along with, this is where the teaching come in, along with putting ourselves in the, in the, in generally uh, healthy, uh, planting generally healthy seeds, wise, um, wise livelihood, uh, wise action, wise speech, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, wise intention, setting our sails in the right direction, setting, the, setting sail in the right direction. If we do that, really just plant seeds in this moment and then let nature take its course. Stay, as the Native Americans say, stay behind the medicine. Don't push the river. Moment at a time. I don't think no matter how toxic your mind or your body is, just like the Gulf, I have a sense that we, it is in our nature to heal. Now, of course, we, we can overdo it. There are ecosystems that have been destroyed where a planet is excessively warm. There, it's not to be too Pollyannish about this, but to, a, to the degree that it's possible being in touch with nature, our nature, which is maybe no nature that you can put your finger on, 
But if you're in touch with nature, there is a natural healing that happens. And it's really, I find that it's very beneficial. And thanks to Brenda, she reminded us that, that this is the spring equinox today. I said outside that at least one person was aware of what nature's doing tonight. Uh, and that was so, it was so wonderful to be reminded about the rhythm of nature and the seasons and the, and the, the planetary flow and all the things that are just happening. And we can all benefit by um, re-entering both our own nature and when we, we're having trouble entering our own nature, using the, the external mindfulness of nature, the external experience. This is from... This is from the Northwest Native American tradition, translated into English. It's called Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead, the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is a place called here. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. Listen. The forest breathes. It whispers. I have made this place around you. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again saying, Here. No two trees are the same to ravens. No two branches the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, then you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are, and you must let it find you. Sometimes we need to be reminded from by reflection about our nature. And uh, I'd like to revisit a little statistic a little list of some statistics about our our fathom long body first humans spend a third of their lives sleeping every person has a unique tongue print there is enough iron in the human body to make one small nail a cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. Sneezes can travel over 100 miles per hour. It takes 17 muscles to smile and 43 to frown. It takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. <laughs> Just think how many it takes to undo most people blink about 25 times a minute, about 20,000 times a day. The average person speaks about 31,500 words per day. Every breath we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cell, cells, kidney cells, brain cells. The average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and join DNA, the genes of the cells it would fit in an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. 
That is from the earth to the sun and back again 400 times. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about 1.5 pounds a year. By 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. I think you've heard enough of this list. <laughs> but see, the, for me, the usefulness of a list like this is it puts us into a state of wonder and awe and just reminds us that this is all happening according to nature. It's not happening according to anybody's will or wish. And that we, in order for us to actually be free, we have to live in harmony with that. And that's all that the Buddha wanted us to do. Stop taking it personally. Stop thinking that we're in control of the 700 million particles that are getting schluffed off every five seconds. I, I, I forgot this statistic already. It's not relevant. But forget about it. Not, don't forget about it, but just know it's a happening. You are a happening. And as my friend Wes says, you are not your fault. You have come together through conditions, through no fault of your own. You don't ask to have the 65,000 thoughts every day that, it's, that we are said to have, that 90% of them being repeats from the day before. We don't ask for this. This is what happens. To be in harmony, everything that we experience it has the appearance of, it has the nature of arising and passing away. Every thought, every feeling, every sensation, every day, it comes and goes. Does anybody make it come and go? this whole life, it's nature. It is nature. The Buddha in this regard said over and over, all things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. Why does it bring great happiness? Because we're in the flow of nature. We're like John O'Donohue who says, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its unfolding. But our mind tends to reduce everything to me and mine and my control and my body and uh, attempt to encapsulate time in, in our thoughts. Uh, and in that we miss, we miss the wonder of just being here together. Where when we open to it, at first it's very confronting to be so undefined to be just nature unfolding, to be just awake. But then once you get used to it, you say, wow, on present evidence, I'm not as bad as I think I am. I'm just awake and everybody's here with me. I'm not, when I don't, th when I don't measure myself by what happened before or what's going to happen, I am just light, heart, presence, caring, Anger, sadness, everything. But it's not in any way like I usually think of myself. And right now, I've, there's room for everything. It's like, where's the, where's the bondage? Where is any of our bondage right now?
unless we're taking our cues from from memory. So my teacher Punjaji used to said, "You need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free." So the Buddha wanted us to be Buddhas, not Buddhists. Wanted us just to be mindful, but not busy being mindful. Just knowing that mindfulness is natural. To turn our attention toward, to turn our attention toward the continuity of this mindfulness. Not because it's something we have to create, because it's because we tend to be happier when we're not lost in our imagination. But it's also natural to get lost in our imagination. So we have to learn how to how to be gracious, no matter how long or how far we wander. When we wake up to say, Hallelujah, I've arrived at the superior place, just being awake. I've come back to nature. And now I can get I can get on with planning my life, which is fine, that happens here. I can I can get on with noticing that I'm worrying about my life. Okay, worries like this. I can get on with with saying, What do I need to do now? Okay. Everything happening now. Everything about nature. As uh, William Blake said, who you are shouts so loud, I can't hear what you say. Or Rumi said, we are the mirror as well as the face in it. We are pain and what cures pain. We are the sweet cold water as well as the jar that pours. We are tasting the taste of eternity in every moment. So be a Buddha, which just simply means awake, not a Buddhist. I often say to, and a final instruction, one that it's not original, someone gave it to me. They said, stop meditating. Just be mindful. And I added, my own version is, stop being a meditator. Just be mindful. But please sit lots of retreats. <laughs> anyway, this is all the time that we have tonight. Sorry we didn't uh, converse much together, and I'll, hopefully in future weeks we will um, we'll have a little more conversation together. But in the meantime, I just want to um, want to, as we always do, uh, remember that when we're in touch with nature, we're in touch with the the reality that we that there's really no ultimate separation uh, among us and that uh, everything we do say and think has not just an impact on ourselves but on all beings and one of the ways that we can keep uh, use our conceptual mind is to incline it toward uh, doing things whatever we do with our life doing it for the welfare and benefit of not just ourselves but all beings so I always like to consider 
every time I sit or whatever, as much as I can remember anything I do, that if there's any benefit to it, any fruits, any goodness, any blessings, any merit, uh, any benefit from whatever I'm up to, uh, I try to dedicate it to the welfare uh, and benefit of others. And I try to punctuate it with a deep wish. Same wish that I have for myself, but a deep wish that all beings can have happiness in their lives and the causes of happiness increasing every day. That all beings can be free of suffering, so much mental suffering, so much physical suffering, and the causes of mental suffering decreasing every day. It's not a lot we can do about the physical part. We can do a lot about the mental part. A deep wish that all beings can recognize the Buddha within, recognize the sacred happiness that's without sorrow here and now, and not overlook this uh, vital point. And a deep wish that all beings grow in serenity and equanimity, uh, able to meet the joyful moments, the pissed-off moments, the sad moments, the, all those moments with more balance, equanimity, um, and able to meet generally all the joys and the sorrows with less reactivity. And just a deep wish that our life, to, our life and practice, our work today and every day be, be uh, give it away freely to all beings. And the most compassionate thing you can do is be awake. So may all beings be liberated. And uh, finally, uh, just a, um, a few different announcements before I hit the gong one last time. A gentle reminder of our, uh, our room rental, $600 a month, 150 a week. Always appreciate any room rental, Donna. Your generosity makes it possible for us to be here. Know that anybody that takes this seat offers, I offer, t- and I'm the one tonight, offer teachings as my practice of generosity. And the way that I'm able to keep doing this is if you practice your form of generosity in the form of support in the basket. Much appreciation. And I wanted to add one more piece of Donna tonight, which is to for you to take advantage as your practice of Donna as well, uh, of those who have, have uh, generously signed up for the service directory. It's on our website, some information in the back. You're welcome to sign up. But those who have signed up on the service directory who offer services in their lives have, have agreed or have from their heart agreed to offer something of whatever they receive back to the Sangha. And I think one of our practices as a Sangha, one of our practices of generosity is to utilize the services of the people who, have, who are offering their services and so that we actually support each other's livelihoods and all of that's dana. It's not just teacher Donna, not just room rental Donna. It's all the ways that we can practice generosity. And I was looking at that list of people who had offered, offered their services and some, some Donna from their services. I said, well, we should be giving Donna to them. So I hope you enjoy the practice of Donna on all levels. And thanks for your practice. And I'll be back next week. And just a sneak preview on the 31st, Saturday the 31st, we have another half-day retreat at the Happiness Institute. I think there will probably be information, but we had a wonderful gathering for those who weren't there the last time. It's a gas to practice on Market Street and practice together in the city. So uh, 
come one, come all. And uh, that it will be the end of the peop- the 60-day practice period for those who've been uh, sitting 60 days. But I think hopefully you'll, you've been sitting 60, you'll practice another 60, and this is just a great time to practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.